Well, um, Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word. We pray that as we um, stand here in anxious anticipation of what Christmas morning represents, that you would cause our own hearts to be still. It's easy to point to our children and uh, their inability to sit and concentrate when so many things are in the air, and yet that is our heart all the time. We are distracted to run to and fro uh, and uh, to see the idols of our hearts exposed in many ways, but here, here is the one who can satisfy us, and we know he has satisfied us because he has come and he has lived among us. He has died for us. He has risen to life, and he's called us to follow him. Bless my words. Bless our time this morning. We pray in your name. Amen. So again, speaking to you kids, uh, I wonder if you've ever attended a fair or an amusement park and discovered a ride you really wanted to go on, and yet you got up there and saw it had one of those signs with that judgmental legalist man holding his finger like this that says, you must be this tall to ride. You're met with immediate disappointment that you don't measure up. College students, none of you are here. <laughs> but perhaps when you were a college student, you were denied... Uh, an internship because maybe your grades weren't high enough, maybe your school wasn't prestigious enough. Others of us have perhaps been barred from boardrooms or mom groups or bank loans because we didn't measure up. And maybe it's those experiences which seem to be so common to our reality that either confirm or shape what is a misunderstanding of Christianity. We think we must be this tall, this good, this holy, this clean, in order to come to Jesus. But what the Bible holds up is the good news that we do not come to Jesus when we are tall enough, but in fact, we can only come to Jesus when we are laid low enough. In fact, if you were to visit today, um, the Church of the Nativity in Bethlehem, the traditional site where Jesus was born on Christmas morning, you'd find that there is one door to that church, but that door is engineered and built so awkwardly that you actually have to stoop and bend over in order to get into the church. And throughout the centuries, it's been called the door of humility. This door is a great reminder of what the Bible says to anyone who would follow Jesus. Peter himself tells us, humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God so at the proper time he might exalt you. But this door of humility that marks the birth of Jesus is not only a reminder of how we must approach Christ, if we wish to be saved, but it's also a reminder of how Jesus came to us in order to be the means by which sinners are saved. Jesus went through the door of humility. We stoop and we come to faith in Jesus Christ by laying down our righteousness, by confessing faith not in ourselves but in another, but no one stoops lower than the Jesus who left heaven to take on flesh so that sinners could be saved. Herman Bavink was a Dutch theologian, and he described the scandal of this birth, the scandal that God would become man, and the contrast of that. In this way, it's a longer quote, it's a beautiful quote, and I hope it's, it helps frame what we're going to look at today together. He says this, he says, Therefore, the incarnation, that's when Christ took on flesh, the incarnation of the Son of God was not only an act of condescending goodness, but it was at the same time an act of deep humiliation. This humiliation commenced at conception, continued throughout his life, even to death, and to the grave. Along various steps, as it were, such as a humble birth, circumcision, the persecution of Herod, and the flight to Egypt, 
the private life and the carpenter's business in Nazareth, Jesus' baptism by John and his temptation in the desert, the opposition, denial, and hatred to which he was exposed in his public activity, his imprisonment and condemnation, his crucifixion, his death, his funeral, his descent to hell. Upon these stairs, he descended deeper and deeper, always farther from the Father's house, always closer to us in the community of our sin and death. Until finally, on the bottom step, he let out a frightened complaint of his own abandonment by God. But here, the victory cry could also be heard. It is finished. Let's pray and you may go. Okay, I'll say a little more. We're going to talk more about that final step. That is the humiliation of Christ's death, death on a cross next week. And I'd invite you back for that. But today in our third week of our Advent series, we're going to examine not the final, but the first step. That is the humiliation of his life as a human. But it was in his willingness to be made weak that we see the power of Jesus to save. And this is where we have the privilege today of seeing that no one and nothing is like our Jesus. And our main point today is simply this, that Jesus' weakness in the flesh shows us the immense power of God. Jesus' weakness in the flesh shows us the immense power of God. And we're going to see this in three ways. First, we're going to see the weakness of the God who became man. Then we're going to see the wounds of men who tried to be God. And lastly, we're going to see the fellowship one between God and man. So we're going to see first a weakness, then wounds, and then we're going to see what is one between God and man. And so first, we're going to see the weakness of the God who became man. And notice the, the uh, humility John displays uh, in the gospel when he's writing this. And I want you to pay attention to the uniquely human experiences Jesus has in this text. We're going to begin uh, in John chapter 4, verses 1 through 7. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria, so he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. And so what John records for us here is a Jesus who in his humanity was both opposed and also ordinary. You'll notice that just as we often experience with others, Jesus here faced the discomfort of relational opposition. He experiences first, we see this painful act of comparison. His ministry is already being compared to John's. How do they measure up against one another? But more than that, we see even early in his ministry, the opposition of the Pharisees and the religious elite is so oppressive that it's actually causing Jesus to actually flee um, from Judea in the south and to travel north to the rural parts of Galilee. And it was in this journey, fueled by oppression and opposition, that we also see that he was ordinary. Despite being fully God, he was also fully human. This journey had him, what, did you notice? Weary, thirsty, we see later on, hungry, Man gets thirsty is hardly a headline that captivates our world and our media-saturated life today because it's so ordinary. It's not newsworthy. We all begin there, and we often 
end there over the course of our day. But that's the wonder of the incarnation. That's precisely the point. What's ordinary for us as humans is not ordinary for the God who made humans. God, in his triune beauty, cannot thirst. Isaiah talks about God this way in Isaiah 40. And we can see this in verse 28 where he speaks of God in this way. He says, have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. So if you have your Bibles open, why don't you keep your finger there in Isaiah. We're going to come back to that later. Maybe put a bookmark. It's a long time to keep your finger there. Um, or you could just turn off your phone and open up later right to that same spot. Uh, either way, we're going to come back. And here what we see is that God cannot grow weary. He cannot grow faint. He doesn't tire. While the Son of God existed in eternity past with God the Father and God the Spirit, he was inexhaustible. He was like a toddler on Christmas Eve, unending and relentless in their energy. There was no end to him. There was no limitation besides his own character and desires. But when Jesus took on flesh, he did not stop being God. He was not divine, but he added, as we've seen, to that divine nature, the true reality of human nature. And so in something that doesn't pencil out according to human math or philosophy or physics, what was at one point eternal and infinite in the incarnation was for a season and in a sense made finite. Can you imagine what this would be like? And we all said together, no. <laughs> we cannot. We have never been an infinite God. In fact, we have always and only been finite humans. We have no comparison to even begin to think about a metaphor that would fit. And so perhaps we could think of something like this. For instance, I, I often visit with missionaries who are visiting stateside, and one of the things they, they talk about is they, they're becoming frustrated uh, being here and out of the culture they were serving because their language skills uh, begin to wear away. It becomes more difficult to remember what they were speaking back in the land in which they're working. Uh, I, for one, have never been frustrated at my loss of knowing Swahili because I don't know Swahili. I've watched Lion King, but that didn't have an indelible effect on my language. So they're frustrated because they have known it. I am blissfully unaware because I've never had it. You see, we get frustrated by stubbed toes and by hunger and by thirst. It hurts. It's real. It's frustrating. And yet we have never not known those things. We come out of the womb crying as a prophetic reality of what the rest of our life will entail. It is difficult. It is painful. We encounter lack. We encounter weakness and limitation. We have always been tied to the needs of humanity, but the Son of God for eternity past was unbound from all of that. If you've ever had to walk through the process of aging with someone, or you find yourself in the aging process, you know how hard it is to ask for help in places where you've generally been capable forever. When an adult who's always been able to use the restroom has to ask for help, we find the feeble, humble, oftentimes embarrassing limits of humanity. When that person is you, you find yourself frustrated, conflicted, 
perhaps even ashamed. But the amount of humility it takes for you to ask someone to clean you up after you've used the restroom is nothing compared to the infinite creator God who had to stop on a walk and ask a woman for water. It doesn't matter if you grew up playing sports or you find yourself to be particularly competitive. When someone calls you weak, there's generally one response. We get mad. We don't like it. We don't want to be weak. We don't want to be weary. We don't want to be subjected to the elements. We want to rise above it. We want to stand tall over it. But we are dependent creatures. We are created. And therefore, we are bound by the one who has created us. Only God is independent. Only he is self-sufficient. Yet, what we remember every year at Advent is that the eternal son in his infinite independence chose to be dependent and subjected to hunger and to thirst and to the ordinary weariness of the flesh. He chose it intentionally. One theologian said this, he gave up the better and he assumed the worst. In this, he didn't whine, though he could have. He didn't sin in his anger, though he felt the tension. But instead, he continued to do what he came to do that we saw last week, that the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. One early church father put it this way, why would he give that up in order to come to us? He said this, he said, for he became man in order that that which was overcome might overcome. For that which is not assumed is not remedied. Because every aspect of our humanity was corrupted by sin, Jesus had to take on the full of humanity. Not just the nice bits, not just when he felt like it, he had to take it in full. Because all of us needed to be healed. The whole of us needed to be remedied. Our thoughts, our actions, our emotions, our ingrown toenails, every piece of it. And he did it so that those who are overcome by sin might overcome in him. And in this passage, the weary Jesus asks for a drink of water on account of his own lack. But the beauty of this passage is despite the weariness that John presents, despite the thirst that John presents, despite the hunger John presents, Jesus in this text is the only one able to provide abundantly, infinitely, and endlessly to his brothers and sisters in the flesh. You see, notice what happens next in verse 7 through 15. And so kids, this is where I want you to listen to how he's talking and what's going on. A woman from Samaria came to drink water, or came to, yeah, came to draw water. And Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you only knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink. You would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I give him will never be thirsty again. 
the water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. And so if you listen closely beyond the language of water and thirst, you probably picked up on a large number of interpersonal conflicts. There's relational wounds all over inside this text. And this is our second point this morning. Why did God become weak in his humanity? Well, because this displays to us, secondly, the wounds of men who tried to be God. God came because of our wounds, the wounds of men who tried to be God. While Jesus became like us, we looked at this in week one, uh, he was like us in every respect, it's important to notice some differences as well. Jesus being uncreated in eternity and eternal, he freely took on flesh out of a perfect desire to save. He wasn't coerced, but none of you did anything to be born. It just happened to you. Jesus was volitional in everything he was doing. And so that's Jesus. But on the other hand, we were created, apart from our own will, apart from our own desire, we were created human, perfectly human, actually. God says we were good when he made us, free from sin, made to walk in fellowship with him. So we did not willingly become human, but what did we do as humans? We willingly chose to add to our humanity the consequences of sin. We chose to take that which was perfect and add onto it it's like when you, uh, you know, moms, you maybe clean your fridge and you look at it and you say it's perfect. And then all of a sudden that toddler who just had mac and cheese says, come and let me help. And they draw on it. <laughs> That's what we tried to do with God's creation. We tried to be God. In Jesus, God took on humanity in order to save a humanity who tried to be God. When Adam and Eve ate the fruit, the lie was, eat this and you'll be like God. The consequence was drastic. It brought not only relational condemnation, which leads to spiritual death, for the wages of sin is death, but all of that sin also came or brought with it pain, toil, and all the things we know so well in this world. Bumps, bruises, conflicts, cancer, awkward tension at Christmas dinner, disappointment at gifts, all those things come from sin. You see, our descent into weariness and brokenness was because of our own condemnation. We chose it and we were stuck with it. But Jesus' descent into our willingness was not because of his uh, condemnation, but on account of his compassion. He chose to come into what he had never earned. We are currently in rock chip season and we all have that wonderful joy of seeing how holy our hearts are when we're driving down the road and all of a sudden a rock just blasts our windshield and we just say, God bless you, everyone. I'm so glad you shared that with me. And what we notice about that rock chip that no one actually calls and gets their insurance to fix because it's not a big deal. But what happens? It spreads, it fractures, it grows. It hits that one spot where whenever the sun hits it, that crack just laser beams straight into your eyes. And that's what sin has done for us as well. 
The impact of Adam and Eve's sin, though started small, as you follow the history of the Old Testament, it fractures and it splinters and it spirals out of control, poisoning every aspect of our life. It's fractured our relationship with nature, and we see that today in the disasters, the famines, the calamities. Many of you see that today as you gaze at snowless ski hills. It fractured our relationship with one another, and it fractured our relationship with God himself. Paul says the sting of death is sin. So every time we encounter anything that stings in this world, we're reminded that this reminds us of our spiritual problem. This world stings because of sin. And the life of this woman that we see in John 4, and the world she describes is riddled with that sting. Did you notice that? She begins by talking about the political element that is behind all of this, this division between people groups. There's a rift between Samaritans and Jews. She says, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? I won't go into all the details there, and John gives us what we need to know. The Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. The wounds of that division is deeper than Grizz, Cats, and Hatfields and McCoys. It was violence. It was visceral. It was real. Sin fractures relationships between cultures and races and nations. It affects us on a corporate level. But we also see that it affects her not only on a political and corporate level, but on an intimate and personal level. Jesus leans into these divides and reveals that personal conflict as well. He says to her, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you're right. You've had five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband. So she's had five husbands, and she's now taken a lover who is not her husband. Now, whether by divorce or death, she lost those five husbands, it seems that she's given up on the hope of marriage altogether and is now living with another man in an ongoing adulterous relationship. And so whether as a sufferer of husbands who have died off five times, or as a sinner, either her husband or herself pursuing adultery that ended in divorce, there was undoubtedly a huge amount of shame and brokenness connected to this woman. This is confirmed by the time of day this woman comes out. She came out to the well, it says it's in the sixth hour, which is midday. It's the hottest part of the day in the Middle East. It's the time of the day when most people don't get water, but it's a perfect time for someone who lives on the edges to go get water and avoid all of the, the examining gazes of her neighbors. The whispers of, there she goes. There she is again. Can you believe who she's staying with? Can you believe what we heard about her? But here Jesus approaches and he presses in, not only to the political conflict, not only to the personal conflict, but as he expresses his intimate knowledge of her, it exposes this spiritual conflict. Her relationship with God is fractured. John 4, she says this. She says, sir, I perceive you're a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where we ought to worship. And so here we see that the effects of sin are profound on our relationship to God. Some of us find ourselves in this text like the Pharisees. We just have no desire to worship Jesus. But some of us find ourselves like this woman, where we become convinced of our sin, either because someone has shown it to us, we have realized it, or God is doing it. And initially, what's our response? Paranoia. <laughs> I don't know how to worship you. I know I'm broken, but then my structure of worship is broken. Where do I go? How do I find peace? Help me make it right. Give me something to do. 
whether politically, personally, or spiritually, all of us know what it's like to succumb to the two ditches of despair. I can do nothing. Or desperation. I've got to do everything. Both end in the grave. But here is Jesus, who just wanted a drink, and now he found himself fully immersed in a counseling session that he did not ask for. I've gone to a grocery store before, met an old friend, asked how he's doing, and he began to uh, bring me into an immensely broken marriage. And I sat there and I said, I just needed some orange juice. (laughs) That's what Jesus is doing here. He's here. He didn't ask for it. He was thirsty. It was hot. What would he do? Well, here he begins to offer to her himself. Weary, he gives her what cannot be wearied. He invites her to know him. He seeks to repair everything that sin has fractured by calling her to the God who redeems it all. Listen to what he says to her in verses 21 through 26. Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. And it's interesting, speaking both into her personal conflict you're right. The husband, you've had five husbands. This guy's not your husband. He doesn't say, no, 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 you're not sinful. And then speaking into the political divide, he's like, yeah, yeah, you Samaritans don't actually know where to worship. The Jews know. So he doesn't deny sinfulness. He doesn't deny brokenness. But what does he do? He continues and he says, but the hour is coming into those moments of division and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Why will they do that? Because the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming. She's getting great, greater awareness of Jesus as he's teaching her. The Messiah who's called the Christ, when he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus says to her, I who speak to you am he. In a world gone wrong, Jesus calls this woman to the only man who can make it right. The gospel reveals to us that that which we truly need often doesn't look like what the world says we need. This man did not look like the man of her dreams, didn't look like the man she was staying with, didn't look like the political power broker who had rend uh, the division between the Samaritans and Jews through some sort of wonderful political conquest. What did he look like? He looked thirsty. He looked weary. He looked alone. Yet he offered to her living water. Jesus' weariness in the flesh led her to reveal her own weakness, sin, and shame. And yet in the weariness of her Savior, his perfect power to repair everything sin had broken, was presented to her. And the location here is important. You'll notice that it says it's the, the well of Jacob and a town called Sychar. When God was bringing his people Israel out of Egypt, they took a little pit stop here. And there would have been two mountains. One to their right was Mount Gerizim. One to the left was Mount Ebal. And as they were about to enter into the promised land, God said, half of you, Israel, you go up on Mount Gerizim and you're going to declare the blessing that will follow if Israel is to obey God. The other half of you go up on Mount Ebal. These are the curse side. 
I don't know which of you want to be on that mountain, but it tells me a lot. Uh, The curse side goes up and he says, I want you to declare the curse of disobedience for all those who don't obey God. And this woman's personal history is representative of our history. Our history bounces between these two mountains, but airs on one side. It is more bruises than blessing, more fractures than fellowship, more curses than celebration. But here, standing between blessing and curse is the man who would bridge the gap. Jesus wouldn't merely warn of the curse, but he would wear her curse. He would bring it not up on the mountain, but up on the cross, so that those who stood far off, those who could not come, would by the spring of his blood ascend the mountain of blessing. That spring, that water is too deep for us to reach. Who can reach it? The woman says to Jesus, are you better than our father Jacob? He was. We can try all we want, but nothing can reach the water we need because it's too deep for us. We can't get there. We can send the bucket down and up repeatedly. We can go try to find another well, but this is where it is. So what do we do? We wait for a God who can reach what we cannot. We wait in this Advent season for the one because we could never go where we needed has come into our need. As a man, Jesus drew the water that only a man could. But as a God, he drew that same water that man could never reach. As God, he brought what we needed. And as a man, he assumed the people with the need. And notice how the story ends. I love reading your Bible. You should read your Bible because notice this. The disciples come back in verse 27, and look what happens. Verse 28, someone left her water jar and went away into town and said to people, come see the man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? Don't you love this? What was the headline at the beginning of this story? Man gets thirsty. What's the headline at the end of this story? Still thirsty. (laughs) Still waiting for a drink. She leaves out of excitement and goes into town. He is still thirsty, but Jesus doesn't care. Why? Because he came to bear our weaknesses for our sake. He came to encounter thirst so that all who are thirsty might never thirst. I told you to keep your finger in Isaiah 40, and I hope you did, because we read Isaiah 40, verse 28, where it talks about a God who cannot grow weary. And what does this unweariable God seek to do? He gives power to the faint. And to him who has no might, he increases his strength. Even when youths faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted, but they who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. We serve a God who cannot weary, and our existence is only wearisome toil. But this Advent season, we celebrate those who have waited for the Lord. For Christ who comes in the flesh 
and is weary. And yet all of the weariness and all of the lack he experienced was so that he might give out of the infinite abundance of his divinity strength to the weak, water to the parched. He suffered for our strength to give it to us when we couldn't. He was parched because we sinned. He encountered all of it for us. That is our Jesus. Many religions present a savior. None of them present a savior willing to bear the cost of the curse. But Jesus does. Everything he did on this earth, he did for the Father's glory and the love of the lost. Paul describes his ministry as being poured out as a drink offering, but no one has poured out like Jesus. Every moment he lived was a moment of constant ministry to restore that which was lost. He endlessly poured himself out because his compassion was greater than our condemnation. His sacrifice deeper than our sin. And lastly, notice, on account of the God who became weak, for those who tried to be God, we have fellowship one between God and man. Fellowship one between God and man. It's interesting. Go back and notice when Jesus first presents living water, how she presents uh, her, her desire. Why, why would this be good? Look at verse 15. She says, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Why did she want living water? So she would not have to go back. Don't make me come here again. She was tired of it. She wanted to be independent from it. She didn't want to suffer the weakness of her needs. She didn't want to be dependent upon this well of water. But notice what Jesus says. Hopefully you have your Bible open. Look at verse 16. What comes next, right? Verse 15. So that I will not have to come here to draw water. And what does Jesus say? Go call your husband and come here. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? She wants living water so that she would not need anything. But the first thing Jesus says is come on back. <laughs> And bring your sins, bring your weakness, bring your weariness that is far more than a parched tongue, but is a sign of a broken heart. And that is the beauty of Jesus. He doesn't eliminate our needs. We will always be needful, dependent creatures. But more than that, what he does is he exposes what we truly need. We need to come back. We get to come back. Always. How many of us come to Jesus thinking that we could just take that one sip and never come back again. We go through the humble, the door of humility, and we just open the back door so that we could come in with all of our pride. We come in and we stay self-sufficiently. But that's not the picture Jesus paints here. He restores us to him so that we always want him, so that we always come back. In fact, after this experience, so remember, she's like, this, I don't want to come here. This is bad. What does Jesus do? He explains the gospel, and look at what this woman does when she goes into town. In verse 429, look at what the woman who never wanted to come back says. Come, see a man who told me all I ever did. Can this be the Christ? The one who didn't want to come back was now calling others. What a transformation. And notice what she said. And how she phrased it, he told me all I ever did. Now remember, these townspeople probably knew a thing or two about this woman. They knew she had skeletons in her closet and a man who wasn't her husband in her bed. In any other circumstance, with any other God, there would be nothing more terrifying and horrible than a God 
who knew everything you ever did. But when this God knows everything you ever did, it is good news because he has chosen to do something about it. He has chosen to call you to the well which heals the wounds. He took on flesh and became like us in order to take the punishment of all we have ever done. Though he was never, uh, though he was frail in his thirst and in his flesh, it was only the strength of God in Jesus that could bear the punishment of our sins. We needed the power of God poured out for human need. Non-Christian in here today, do you know that you can meet one who accounts and knows all you have ever done but still calls you to drink? To know that he knows the deepest well of your heart, the secret shadows of your soul, he has come to save you. When he knows sinners like this, this is good news. It is humble news. It is costly news, but it is good news. He calls you to come and die. He calls you to come back from your own agenda. But what Jesus gives up in order to save you is nothing compared to what we give up in order to follow him. He bore the cost. We get the joy. It's humble. It's laborious at times, but it is the life of being known in a good way by Jesus. His weakness is our strength. And now notice the response of the crowds. Verse 30, what did the crowds do? They went out of the towns and they were coming to him. We pick up again in verse 39. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. There's a good gospel summary for us to talk about as we go home with our families when you're sitting next to Cousin Eddie, say, do you know there's a man who can tell you all you ever did? And he's done something about it. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him, so they came to him and they asked him to stay with them. And he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. And they said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe. For we have heard ourselves and we know that this is indeed the savior of the world. You see, in Jesus, it is not enough that a sinner be reconciled back to God. Jesus has come to be the savior of the world. He has come to repair all that sin has fractured, and that includes you and your mess, your weakness, and your wounds. Every other human experience will leave you needing to come back because it cannot fix that problem. But the joy of following Jesus is that we want to come back because he can fix our problems. We will always need another paycheck. We'll always need another kiss. We'll always need another day of vacation. We'll always need another drink. We'll always need another car. Those things stand in worldly power and they fall by worldly power. But Jesus is the power of God for worldly people. He is the one who brings us through the humble door into the divine compassion of a God who does something for us. He came not to offer, but to be offered. 
He came not to provide empty comfort of words to our need, but the costly conformative in taking the punishment of our need. And to come to him is to come to endless, bottomless, living water in the midst of a parched place. He is the savior of the world. Come to him and keep coming back. And not just on Sundays, but on Mondays. And on Tuesdays and on Wednesdays and on Thursdays and even when we're excited for the weekend on Fridays and on Saturdays. But you're too tired. So come. He is for the tired. But you're too busy. Come. Because you're a slave to the pace of a world which cannot offer salvation. But you're stuck in sin. Come to the one who breaks your shackles. But the Bible seems dreary. Come to the one who enlivens it by the power of his spirit. But I am so weary. Come to the one who gives us new life and a resurrected body, who is glorious beyond all compare, who is the savior of the world. Come to him. And come quickly. And so what I offer you This Christmas Eve morning is simply this. What Peter offers the lame beggar in Acts 3. Silver and gold I have not. But what I do have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus of Nazareth, rise and walk. Brothers and sisters, we have more than gifts awaiting us this Christmas. So let us rise and worship. Let's pray. Lord, we pray that you cause our hearts to be increased to the size of our need. That you cause our praise to be multiplied by the size of your grace, and that you cause our joy to be magnified to the size of our Jesus. Lord, we know what it's like to be weary and we didn't ask for it. But Christ asked to enter into our weariness because of the love of the Father, so that through him we might be restored in soul and in spirit, and one day forever, eternally. So Lord, make us come. We pray this in your name. Amen.